This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium and happy Thanksgiving to my Canadian listeners. Now listen, if you had your turkey tonight, I'm, I'm hoping you didn't get too much tryptophan into your system. Otherwise, you won't be able to stay awake uh, because we've got a good one for you again tonight. Maybe I should look into that. Maybe there is a, a turkey conspiracy happening. Uh, Dr. John Apsley is standing by in New York City. If you're not familiar with John's work, he specializes in regenerative medicine. We're going to talk about Ebola uh, tonight. The death toll and the number of people infected keeps ticking up in sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, just recently, the Liberian uh, Thomas Duncan passed away in a Dallas hospital after becoming infected with the Ebola virus and then traveling to the United States. We're going to get into the likelihood that this outbreak could develop into a global epidemic. Are there any parallels between this Ebola outbreak and the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, which killed somewhere between 20 and 50 million people? We'll also discuss how we should be fighting this thing. Is it boots on the ground in Africa, building infrastructure and and quarantine field hospitals? Or should we be banning travel between North America and these hot zones, Uh, to quote Richard Preston? I think we dodged a bullet with Duncan. He could have infected others. A cluster could have developed. But it's just a matter of time, perhaps, before Ebola comes to our shores. And we'll talk about the likelihood of that. Is it just a question of when rather than if? Uh, Is this the big one? We're overdue for a pandemic, and they happen once every generation, we're told repeatedly. Is it possible Ebola has been weaponized? Why does the Centers for Disease Control have a patent? on one of the many strains of this virus. That's been gnawing at me for some time. Very curious, a patent on the Ebola virus. But before we get to that, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, the Conspiracy Show television program was preempted by another program on Vision. But don't worry, we're back this week, another brand new episode. I believe uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Water Engine episode was supposed to air. uh, And so that was last week, and I believe this week it's Marilyn Monroe. Uh, was she murdered, and whether the Kennedys may have been involved in that. That's uh, coming up on uh, Monday night, 10 p.m. Eastern, 
And don't forget, after the show or during the show, log into theconspiracyshow.com, theconspiracyshow.com, our interactive website, and you can vote, debate, discuss. And uh, again, just a, a reminder, you've only got a few more weeks in order to order your passes to my conference, Follow the Truth, The Conspiracy Show Summit, Sunday, November the 16th at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. Past Lives with Debbie Papadakis, uh, Roswell with Don Schmidt, uh, and uh, Professor Ronald Mallet uh, on uh, time travel. Oh, and we have a new speaker. Just added him to the roster, Andrew Gregg. Fascinating guy. He's going to talk about pyramids. Pyramid power, remember that? Uh, and the likelihood that, that pyramids, that and they're discovering these things all over the world, not just in Serbia, uh, but now in, in all over Central America, Costa Rica, where he lives, uh, these things may actually be giant batteries. That's his theory. And they can be used as a power source and also to heal. Roger, or Andrew Gregg, uh, on the roster now. Follow the truth. Uh, the Conspiracy Show Summit. Sunday, November the 16th, Region Theatre, all-day event. Call the box office first thing tomorrow. I'm told, I don't know what's going on out there. I'm told ticket sales are really slow. So listen, uh, you gotta you got to answer the bell, folks. Call the box office tomorrow morning, 905-721-3399 or followthetruth.tv, www.followthetruth.tv for all the details. Hope to see you there. Dr. John Apsley is a physician author who has for the past 30 years specialized in regenerative medicine. His cutting-edge techniques are designed to reverse chronic degenerative diseases at their source through accelerated tissue repair and cellular regeneration. Dr. Apsley holds degrees in medicine, chiropractic, and nutrition, and as a certified acupuncturist, he has written or co-authored six books, including Fukushima Meltdown and Modern Radiation, and the bestseller, The Regeneration Effect. Hey, Dr. John, how are you? Oh, good, Richard. It's so good to be back with you. You know, we have these these global epidemics once a generation. Of course, we all hearken back to the uh, the Spanish flu uh, back in 1918-1920 that killed something like 50 million, 100 million uh, souls, uh, 675,000 here in North America. It, what do you think about Ebola? Is this the next global uh, epidemic? Is this the big one we've been waiting for? It could be for several reasons. Uh, with the uh, containment procedures that the developed nations have, you would think not. But because of the mutation ability of the Ebola, um, it could very well be. So this is, remains to be seen. Well, they seem very confident. When I say they, I mean the Centers for Disease Control and, and uh, up here in, in Canada. Uh, we're being told we have nothing to worry about, and hence there is no need uh, for... Uh, quarantining people that arrive on these shores uh, from uh, places like Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, Guinea, uh, Nigeria, etc. I don't know. I, I'm not so confident. When you have Western doctors on the ground in Africa, heavily gloved, taking, you know, wearing hazmat suits, and they're getting Ebola, to me, uh, you know, that's cause for concern. I don't think we're doing enough here. How about you? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things that we should be doing is more careful monitoring uh, the folks coming over from Africa, both as they head into Europe and then come over here, as well as when they come directly over here. Like, for example, in New York, we've got two airports that are receiving people from West Africa every single day in hundreds and hundreds of numbers. And there's been no real check to see whether or not they're sick. And on top of that, 
Uh, the incubation period, once you've been exposed, is anywhere from 2 to 21 days. So let's say you're, you were exposed a week ago and you have no symptoms. There's no way to find out at the airports whether or not that you're infected, whereas they do have equipment that can read if your body temperature is higher than normal, but those aren't installed. But even if they were installed, those people that are in between showing symptoms wouldn't be caught. And there is a propensity of people to want to lie because if they do lie by saying, oh, no, no, I wasn't uh, even close to someone with e Ebola, but they really were, uh, they're coming over here because they know that they can receive the best treatment in the world. So that's why that we see a couple of cases of those already, including the most recent one here in Texas. Well, this patient in, in Dallas is being charged by Liberian officials uh, for doing exactly that, uh, being somewhat deceptive, getting on an airplane, endangering the lives of uh, Lord knows how many uh, North American citizens. Uh, they're taking it far more seriously over there than uh, American officials uh, seem to be taking it. But let's let's just back up a minute. Uh, Dr. John Apsley is with us as we discuss uh, the Ebola outbreak. Uh, give us a, a, a little thumbnail sketch of the history of the Ebola virus. Very good. Well, it was discovered in 1976 in Africa. Uh, there are five different strains. Uh, one of them actually is uh, pretty common here as far as viruses go in the United States or North America, but it's not lethal. The other four cause bleeding um, symptoms uh, in the intense stages, and that makes them very prone to killing people. Unfortunately, this particular strain is called the Zare strain. It's 90% fatal. And so right now it's sweeping through Africa for two reasons. Number one, um, it's 90% fatal. Number two, um, they don't have a, a system of quarantine over there that's as developed as it could be. And that's the best treatment is to keep it from being uh, spread is just simply to in, basically imprison people into um, uh, 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 fever clinics, if you will, or fever uh, uh, triage centers where they keep people from reinfecting others. Um, so when you consider that the Spanish flu, which killed, as you noted, between 50 and 100 million worldwide, it was, uh, its lethal effects were about 5% globally. Well, this is 90% fatal if you're exposed. Um, when you have the opportunity to come to a developed nation, that uh, death rate goes down because one of the, uh, about 50% of the people die from the virus. The other 50% uh, that do die, die from dehydration. So with uh, the only way to rehydrate someone who's having diarrhea and vomiting at the same time, uh, which is what's killing half of the numbers in Africa, is to hydrate them with IVs. And so we can do that over here in the U.S., but it's more difficult to do when you're in the trenches over in Africa. So that's the reason why people want to come here. They know that it's 90% fatal over there, um, and they know if they get into a hospital that has uh, the proper uh, setup, uh, and that's another thing we should talk about, um, that they can be hydrated and try to get their immune system back online, which is the reason why they will survive or why they won't survive. And those are, those are two keys in, uh, in, in any kind of viral infection, and that's where we can intervene, um, I'm happy to say. But other than that, um, this is the reason why I think the numbers are being 
uh, underestimated for the developed nations. Number one, there is this level of false confidence that we have the ability to quarantine very effectively here in the United States. Um, and that's never been tested. It's all in the books. It's written down. The plans are there. But we already see that in Dallas, that family uh, was confined to that apartment complex where the uh, contaminated materials uh, remained. And it was just recently cleaned up. That If only one or two or three of the family members were um, uh, it, you know, made contagious, by the time that they cleaned up that, that apartment complex, probably 100%, or many more of that family was contaminated because you have to clean up really exactly, well. Exactly, yes. There's no yeah, question. They're, they're playing with fire here. We'll uh, discuss further. On the other side, Dr. John Apsley, as we discuss Ebola, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And we're back with Dr. John Apsley as we discuss uh, the Ebola virus. Uh, now, here's something that I find very curious, and, and I, I posted this uh, on my website, richardserrett.com, a few weeks ago, but th- this story has really has gone viral, <laughs> pun intended, and that is that the U.S. government took out a patent on a strain of uh, Ebola. The patent number, you can look it up, it's online, it's CA2741523A1, the human Ebola virus, patented. What on earth is going on there, Dr. Uh, Apsley? Well, I, you know, this is the first I've heard of it, uh, but we do know from the past when the government does that, it's either uh, an engineered recombinant form of the virus. In other words, it could be something that was weaponized, um, and or it was a strain of the virus that uh, was unique, and they were conducting experiments with it perhaps to develop future vaccines. I don't know in this case which one it was, but... Whoever is holding the patent, you can trace it back to the people that actually developed it, and you can find out from their resumes if they're located at, like, Fort Detrick and if they're, you know, one of these special uh, Army-based um, uh, germ warfare facilities. You can, you can bet that they're doing uh, experimentation with germ warfare. Now, there's a reason for that. Um, it's not sinister. Um, it's because that if we ever encounter something that's been weaponized from a foreign enemy, we want to have conducted as many experiments with it as we can to try to find out how to antidote it. So um, that's uh, one reason why they could have developed this. The other reason they could have developed it is because that when they were out there searching for where epidemics start, well, CDC can position people worldwide uh, just in the event that an epidemic uh, might start from a given area. Africa's a good area. Um, you want to find the latest strain that has mutated, again, in order to know the best uh, ways in which to treat it. Now, you, you mentioned, you sort of did the math for us. Uh, if this virus, you know, breaks out of Africa and into major centers in Europe, in the Middle East, uh, within Africa, obviously, first of all, but then overseas, how bad could this get? Give me a give me a figure. Is that even possible? It, it's a little bit difficult, but let me give you some figures. Um, if you were to base it just on the death rate, um, we have a real problem on our hands. Uh, so let me go over that first, because that's worst case scenario, and then we can cut back from there. Uh, because only five percent of the world's population died during the Spanish flu, and that was probably the worst on record. 
And because this has a 90% death rate, if you can't get treated by in, in the hospital systems to rehydrate yourself, uh, it's still 50% deadly if you are. Uh, we're talking about, um, uh, in comparison, about 675,000 people died here in North America in 1920, 1918, 1919. We're looking at closer to 30 million, 30 million if you use just the death rate. But worldwide, uh, we estimated between 50 million and 100 million died. We're talking about over a billion would die, uh, would have died, excuse me, would have died because there was 1.6 billion people on the planet back then. Today we have closer to 7 billion people on the planet, so 90% of 7 billion would be the worst-case scenario. Now, how could that happen? Well, you're, you have to calculate based upon the infectivity rate. And fortunately, they rate the Azare Ebola at down at a very low level of infectivity because they can uh, do quarantine. They can keep it so that uh, people aren't readily exposed to the fluids that come off of someone that's infected. But your note, Richard, is very, very critical. This causes a lot of of specialists who are first-line specialists who, who uh, would be right there in the hospitals and in the ambulances to be very, very concerned. Why have so many nurses and doctors who know ex- extreme precautionary measures and practice them so well um, become infected in Africa? Why is that? And this is the one uh, infectivity rate that needs to play itself out because with the with the current estimates the way they are, and I can I can promise you this has also happened with the Fukushima incident. Um, initial estimates are always going to be low. They're going to want to keep people from wanting to have too much fear, and uh, I don't believe in that. I I believe that fear uh, done properly in proper context can usher in people to take preventive measures if they know what those preventive measures are. So I like to use fear in an, in a highly educational format. Uh, that's balanced with here's what you can do to prevent yourself from from, uh, succumbing to uh, a threat. But the the governments don't want to do that. They uh, don't recognize, for example, that taking vitamin C and vitamin A and vitamin D3 and building up your immune system with things like uh, lactofurin, which comes from colostrum and zinc, uh, can prepare your immune system to fight off most things. And then they don't recognize other things that are, can directly intervene against the virus that are over-the-counter. Um, they tend to want to go to very expensive, newly developed drugs that are in limited supply, uh, which is what cured uh, uh, several of the physicians and nurses that have returned, um, and that's limited. So here's the catch. If each hospital has to have a negative pressure room or treatment facility, we're going to run out of those special treatment areas really quick if the numbers start to escalate like they have in Africa. Now, how could that happen? With the numbers of people coming over from West Africa and just popping through without any checks, and you get one person who suddenly makes contact over a week with a 100 other people, suddenly you have a cluster. If enough of those clusters start occurring in different states and different small regions, then those hospital beds that are able to be in negative pressure rooms will become totally exhausted. 
And then the system begins to start becoming wary and fatigued in terms of what resources are available to treat those people. In that case, quarantine measures are taken, and those people are not really uh, treated at all. They're just simply quarantined. That's when you get the 50% to 90% death rate starting to occur is in those quarantined environments. And that's where you don't want to be, or at least if you are, you want to know how to be taking things to keep your immune system strong during that time period. Dr. John Apsley is with us here on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss Ebola. Now, the let's say here in North America, I, th- I believe the number that you uh, mentioned was 30 million deaths, worst-case scenario. But that's just from the illness itself, I'm gathering. It wouldn't include, for example, uh, the societal breakdown that you would have because of the fear where, for example, uh, policemen would stay home, firemen would stay home, uh, medical personnel, nurses, doctors refuse to go to work because of the fear factor. Uh, You have societal breakdown, rioting in the streets, food shortages. That is going to make the actual Ebola virus look like a walk in the park. Well, that's exactly what we saw during the Fukushima disaster with the nuclear power plants. The doctors and the nurses and the paramedics that were first-line responders, up to 75% of them left northern Japan. So at some point in time when you run out of the ability to down yourself, to, to protect yourself with proper clothing, uh, you're going to have these first responders that are going to be looking at that uh, decision-making process. Do they want to uh, uh, you know, put their, themselves at that much risk? Uh, but, but we have a long ways to get there. Now, could the federal government, both in Canada and the U.S., uh, provide enough raw materials, uh, such as uh, clothing and uh, all the different uh, containment uh, procedures and supplies, in time? If the outbreak were like that that we saw in Africa, in other words, if the graph of the, ex- of the uh, rapid growth rate of infected cases in Africa were to occur here in North America at the same rate, would we be able to head it off to the pass? This is where the uh, specialists in the field, not the academics, not the one with the credentials that are in the academic environment, but the same physicians that have the credentials that are in the trenches, that's what they're warning against. They're saying we have not taken enough steps to head it off at the pass. And the first thing that we should do is to stop all uh, travel from from Africa. This is what a lot of them are saying, uh, because we can't detect uh, whether or not these people are infected or not until after they can start a cluster here in 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 this part of the of the uh, of the hemisphere. So what do we do? Um, it, it's it's something that if you believe in in big government, then it's like okay, they're just going to get it right. But let me say this. The mathematical projections that we've just been talking about have never been correct. The actual reality has always been greater. So those academics and those government officials, which are quoting stats that are saying that there's no way we can head it off the path, so on and so forth, that's purely academic and that has never been born when the actual reality takes place after the fact. And on top of that, do we have all of the things in place that make us prepared? And the answer to that is no, we do not. So with 
we will just have to wait and see as to how well that the governments can ramp themselves up to... Uh, now, the last thing, Richard, we have always been a reactionary culture. That's our fault. That's, that's the citizen's fault. Until we get cancer, we don't quit smoking tobacco. That's how, that's how we are, and uh, it's unfortunate. Those of us like you and me that know how conspiracies actually start, what's, why? Because, oh, we don't want anybody to panic because they're reactionary and they're going to be too late uh, to figure out the actual reality. Well, your show specializes in saying, hey, listen, folks, here's a heads up. We know from history that the math is never correct, that the actual reality is always greater or worse than what's projected. So take preventive measures, be astute, be ever watchful, and don't trust the government to tell you everything that you can do to be uh, prepared. And we can talk about that on the show. Well, it's interesting. We're, we're heading into a break here in about two minutes, but let's just begin this conversation and we'll continue on the other side. And you mentioned how we're a... A, uh, a reactive, you know, we, we're not proactive, we react, except when it comes to this so-called war on terror. I mean, that's the topic of another show, whether it's a phony war, and I happen to think it is largely. Uh, but in, when, when the perceived threat are these brown-skinned people with turbans living over there, uh, you know, they're capable of uh, hatching conspiracies, but we don't do it over here. When that is the perceived threat, uh, then... We, we, we cease to become reactionary and we become very proactive. Uh, and yet here we are staring in the face of what could be the worst global pandemic or the worst global epidemic we've, we've ever known. And yet I just see them as being inc incredibly cocky. I don't know. Is it political correctness that is standing in the way of uh, your government and my government? basically saying no flights into uh, West Africa and no flights out into this country. Is that, is that what it is, political correctness? Or something more I, sinister? I, I think it's uh, um, an unconscious conspiracy. I think that the comfort zones of these academics that uh, make those determinations, those people at uh, the government uh, decision-making process, they're going to be reactionary. They're not going to be proactive. Uh, prevention has never been a strong suit here in the U.S. Um, you know, one of the things about cancer, it's 90% caused by env environmental toxins. That's a 100% preventable issue. But yet next year or by 2016, it will become the number one death uh, causation. Cancer will be. It'll take over heart disease. because, And, and, and yet it's like up to 90% uh, preventable. Well, if you were to look at terrorism, if you were to look at wars... Sorry, i got to jump in um, here, Dr. Apsley. We'll, we'll pick up... will beat it out. Okay. Time. All right, we'll pick it up on the other side. The Conspiracy Show, Dr. Apsley, Ebola. And we are back here on The Conspiracy Show with Dr. John Apsley. Uh, Dr. Apsley, give us a website where people can read your, uh, your dispatches on Ebola and other medical health issues. They just go to drapsley.com. That's uh, D-R... A, P as in Paul, S as in Sam, L-E-Y dot com. Now, the, um, the interesting approach here is they want to put boots on the ground in West Africa. Uh, you know, they keep saying the best defense is a good offense. Let's go over there. Let's send our soldiers over there. Let's send medical teams over there. Uh, and, and they want to pack them onto these troop carriers 
you know, it's it's starting to sound very familiar. What wasn't it? These troop carriers back in 1918, uh, and many people don't know this, but the the Spanish flu that was that played a large role in ending the First World War. Uh, it wasn't you know you know negotiations and 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 peace treaties and so forth. It was you know both sides being decimated by the Spanish flu. Uh, but but the idea of sending troops over there in troop carriers and then bringing them back on troop carriers in close proximity, it's almost like they're willing this to happen. Well, you know, let me let me address it this way. Um, to me, it's the most um, one of the most ironic things I've ever heard is government officials saying that instead of implementing preventative measures here, that is to capture people coming in or to stop flights in and out of Africa, so on and so forth, let's fix Africa first. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. The resources that it will take to establish the infrastructure throughout Africa to contain the Ebola over there is astronomical and will take time. By that time, the, uh, the, the porousness of the travel that is allowed from Africa over to Europe and to here will have already uh, started these clusters. And so this is the reactionary issue. See, we're reacting to what's already taken place in Africa. No one was talking back in April about taking these urgent, uh, uh, you know, uh, structural corrections uh, by flying in troops and by flying in doctors and, and all that. So uh, now we are because we're coming up on about 20,000 people that uh, uh, will be nailed by this virus here in the next uh, several months, and then it will just keep on increasing until we contain it in Africa. Well, good luck. What we can do is to expect that um, it'll be after there's a whole bunch of incidents in Europe and in America and in Canada that we say, oh, no more flights from Africa why don't we seal the border first and then correct the problem in Africa and gear up? Let's make more negative pressure rooms possible here in hospitals across North America. Let's make sure there's enough gowns, that there's enough uh, equipment, that there's enough supplies. We don't even have the conventional drug treatments to intervene, like this, the small number of people, physicians and nurses that were cured by select drugs. We hardly have any of that. So why don't we build those, that number up so that, so that we're ready rather than be reactionary and try to play catch-up? It, it's never made any sense to me. But again, this is our society. Welcome to the 21st century. Well, I, I think there certainly uh, is you know, some of that going on, this lackadaisical uh, approach and you know, reactionary uh, part of our culture at play. But I... I I'm sitting here, you know, host of the conspiracy show, and my mind does tend to go there. I mean, I, I go back to what Dr. Len Horowitz's book, AIDS, Ebola, or Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola, Accident, Nature, or Intentional. And, and in one of the chapters in his book, he discusses, and this is going back 15 years ago, he discusses, or more, he discusses Ebola at that time already being airborne. Do you think maybe that might explain why we have these uh, doctors, despite their precautions, their hazmat suits, getting Ebola over there? Do you think this thing already has gone airborne? Well, it, 
to a degree. There are two kinds of airborne. There is the kind of airborne that we're, I think, actually seeing, um, where, that where a, a sneeze or a cough uh, could produce a tiny liquid droplet that could travel 5 to 10 feet. Uh, that certainly has, is possible. There was a Canadian study that showed that pigs uh, could transmit to primates like monkeys uh, in that manner, and there are other cases where that's true for Ebola. Um, but in general, um, it, it's, the, it's the fluids. It's going to be the fluids uh, in, in the same way of like HIV, except with HIV, you can't get a viral transmission by kissing, but in this case, you can. Uh, you can shake someone's hand and then scratch your eye, and that will transmit the virus. Yeah, this is not that, as far as I can see, it's not you know, that difficult to transmit from That's human correct. to human. Uh, and there's, n- there's no reason for this cocky attitude on the part of your government and mine that they can contain this thing. That is true. Let's, that is, uh, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. We'll take another time out, come back with Dr. John Apsley as we discuss Ebola. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. And uh, we're back. Uh, one last go-around with Dr. Apsley as we discuss Ebola uh, tonight this morning on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, let me get back to uh, the numbers here and uh, in, in Africa. Let's focus on, on Africa. Is this just, I mean, you're saying the infrastructure isn't there. It's, it's going to take years to contain this thing. So, uh, and, so ultimately, it's just a matter of if or, or when, not if, this gets into the major centers. Uh, this is going to be a very big problem for Africa for the foreseeable future. I mean, how many, how many deaths do you see in, in Africa? How many, how many years is this going to go on before it can be contained, if ever? Well, that's the reason why they're sending the troops. The troops are not going to be in harm's way at all. They're going to simply build these fever centers. In other words, they're prisons. As soon as someone comes down with the actual symptoms, they're brought right into these fever centers and made as comfortable as possible. And then, according to World Aid, they might be treated with uh, some of the things we have over here, but not all of the things we have over here in, in, the, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, if they can just get these people rehydrated, then they're going to lower down the death rate to about 50%, because that gives their immune system enough time to try to play catch-up. Um, so when we send troops in and we send other volunteers in, uh, the bulk of that is going to be just to build these centers. It's not going to be to, to directly intervene. Now, now to your point, those folks that are first uh, uh, line of defense, yes, there has been, I think, an inordinately larger number of people contracting the virus with all precautions being taken for no darn good reason. Now, they're, they're trying to figure that out. They think it was, oh, we didn't do decontamination properly when we were spraying ourselves down with bleach. That's how they, they spray them, their gowns down. Uh, they're basically like these big, thick raincoats. Um, and they spray them with bleach, and they didn't wait long enough before they took all their clothes off, and, and suddenly it splashed in their eye, and boom, they were infected, or they inhaled it. Um, but that's going to happen again and again and again and again. So what, what I think that folks need to realize is, is that what are the treatments that are working? And let me cover that real quickly because it's something that makes sense. The drugs that are being used are attaching directly to the virus to make it distorted so that it can't enter inside cells. That's the first step. 
And the second step is to trigger the immune system to become really strong again. It's, a, it's a, like a Muhammad Ali one-two punch, one-two punch. Well, we can replicate that with natural approaches. Um, there is, for example, nanoscale or silver uh, is well-known. NASA did testing back in the mid-'70s, and there's probably over uh, 10,000 articles on nanoscale or silver that show that it will distort the virus. It will either cut it up like a cleaver um, or it will uh, attach to it to make it much more difficult for it to enter into cells. That's number one. And then things like vitamin C and vitamin D3 and vitamin uh, and zinc, the mineral zinc, those things will build up the immune system. And that's where my specialty is. Uh, one of the areas that I studied for, for many, many years is how to intervene successfully by peaking our immunity. And that's where these people survive. That's where you either die or you survive. And if you have enough nutrition, if you're not too old, if you're not too young, uh, then you may be one of the 50% uh, that, that survives this thing. If you're in Europe, though, Dr. Apsley, uh, try getting your hands on good quality vitamin C, vitamin D, and some of the other ingredients that you mentioned, because uh, a lot of that has been you know, pushed under the counter. That is exactly right. And, and that's because of the of the drug cartel. <laughs> Clear and simple. They don't want competition. They want the drugs. Well, here's a case where the drugs aren't available, and yet because they're wanting to protect the profits for these future drugs or the current drugs, um, if the clusters start to take effect, what do they say? Oh, there's no known cure. That's what they say. We we can't treat this. There's no known cure, which uh, justifies them putting the, these folks in the quarantine. That's where both the conscious and unconscious conspiracy takes place. We have ignorance and we have people that really know what they're doing here that are stopping uh, pe uh, people in Europe from having access to, to uh, large doses of vitamin C uh, and large doses of vitamin D3 and large doses of vitamin A. We're not talking about huge, huge doses. We're talking about uh, a little bit more than what you would normally get in a healthy diet. Um, and, and zinc, all that raises, like, for example, they're using interferon that's been tagged as one of the treatments, one of the one-two punches. That's used for well, hepatitis. Yeah, oh, used for all kinds of viral things. But remember, that's where people are surviving is when their immune system kicks into high gear and this virus attacks the immune system, just like HIV does, so or very similar to it. So by um, making your body's interferon kick into high gear then you can you have the greatest chance to defeat this thing. And once you're immune, then you're immune pretty much uh, for, for long, long term. In fact, one of the treatments they're giving is those people that have survived, they're taking out uh, that person, they're doing a blood transfusion. They're taking out the plasma, the liquid part of the blood, injecting it directly into a compatible uh, patient who's active with the virus, and it's, it's really working. In fact, the first doctor was cured that way, or at least a large part of his symptoms were relieved because they ran out of the drugs. Hmm. Well, here's my big concern, one of my big concerns. And we go back to the war on terror on this one. How long is it before someone, I don't know, like ISIS, clues into the fact that, hey, we can pack a bunch of infected uh, people from uh, Liberia, Guinea, onto a plane, fly them into New York, 
let's say they're at day 18, they don't show symptoms until about day 21, those people have instructions to go out and mingle with uh, as many New Yorkers as they possibly can once they, uh, you know, once they start to so- show symptoms. And then all of a sudden, storm. you've got more clusters than you can ever imagine in the Big Apple. Oh, yeah. It's a perfect storm. Um, ISIS and ISIL fame is core al-Qaeda. They are very, very smart. They're hardened. They're experienced. And they know this. Um, I'm sure that this is one of their strategies, unfortunately, and it's one of the things they want to, uh, the government officials don't want to talk about openly. This is the reason why that we put our TSA into place here across the country. This is the reason why I am saying, let's shut it down. If we can try to play catch-up as quickly as possible with those 150 to 300 Americans, I don't know about Canadians, there's got to be a smaller number, but still, that have passports that are members of ISIL and ISIS, this is uh, one strategy that, that they've got to be thinking about. And, of course, it's a smart one. Now, let me just tell you this, uh, Richard, so that your audience knows. The incubation period is between two days and 21 days. What we've seen recently is these people are very ill by day seven. They are very ill by day seven. So, uh, But still, that's something that, that uh, these terrorists could put into the equation and get, get these people exposed and get them sent over here immediately and that would just be horrible. Oh, I, I guarantee that they're thinking about this. They're, they're plotting this as we speak. And when it happens, not if, when it's attempted, I know what the, uh, the officials, let's say it happens under Obama's watch, what they're going to say. Just like Condoleezza Rice said in the wake of 9-11, well, we couldn't ever have anticipated something like that. That's exactly what they'll say, and yet it's obvious even to a four-year-old that that's what's going to go down. That's why we are a reactionary culture. We put politicians in charge who baby us, who think that we're not smart enough to know this, to be proactive, and they just say, let's, let's just uh, wait until after the fact, and then we'll try to deal with it as best we can. You're exactly right, Richard. Well, that's why uh, in the deepest, darkest recesses of my reptilian brain, Dr. Apsley, I think there is some rogue element in government or above government uh, that has no allegiance to this country or ours uh, that want this to happen and that are either going to make it happen or let it happen. What do you think of that? We mean for population control. Yes. Well, what a mess, though. I mean, talk about a way to control a population. Hemorrhagic fever. Oh my God, it is, it is unbelievably frightening, messy. It's it's just horrible. Uh, I, I, I mean, in terms of, un- listen, I'm a big proponent of unconscious conspiracy on grand scales that deals with the, this reactionary, uh, oh, I, I'm big government, I have to take care of our citizens, I know better than they do attitude. That's what gets us into trouble. As I said, cancer is going to be the number one de- cause of death here in North America within the next one to two to three years, and it's 90% preventable. And we don't push it because big industry is what's causing it. Now, that's if you if you if you uh, be a whistleblower and you work for the CDC, you work for NIH, you work for NCI, and you say, "Hey, listen, that company's doing this and that company's doing that," you get fired. That's that's this ignorance that goes into it. That's stupidity. That's not someone saying, uh, "Listen, we're going to plot." 
uh, causing these cancer rates to take off like crazy. It's people who are just afraid of losing their jobs. Now, I have to say this, though, to back the, the conscious part of the conspiracy. Those individuals that really know this, they buy the hospital beds. They buy into the, the cancer treatments of the future because they know that this is how society has always operated. Until we, the people, become proactive and we elect only officials that are proactive, in other words, they're smart and talk like you do, we're going to continue to have the same problem again. And unfortunately, most college kids today don't even know who the first president of the United States was. I mean, it's crazy how, how dumbed down we've, we, our kids are today. It's, it's not good. It's well, not good. G- we've got about a minute here, Dr. Apsley. Give us an assignment. Uh, well, because we, we are running out of time, please come to my website. I'll, I will give you uh, a lot of excellent homework of things that you guys can do, um, all referenced with the medical peer review. I'm a big on that because uh, when you're out there in front being proactive, everyone wants to attack you because they're not. You know, uh, I'm saying that nanoscalar silver, colloidal silver that's nanoscalar, um, is wonderful to intervene and to peak the immunity in these kinds of situations. Vitamin C has been shown in Africa to reduce all kinds of the so-called uh, uh, plagues that are endemic to certain places in Africa. Uh, amazing stories. Uh, vitamin D3, why is it the flu hits at, in, starting in December? Because everyone has is, is been indoors, no, sun, no sunshine. Got about 20 seconds. So, these are the kinds of things that you'll read on my website of what you do to build your immunity. And then if you have to intervene to develop what I call peak immunity in these, uh, you know, these urgent situations, then you'll, you'll know what works in those cases, too, that you can have in your home. Dr. Apsley, thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. Thank you again for having me on. My pleasure. We'll stay on top of this and we'll talk to you periodically. Okay, let me give you Dr. Apsley's website one more time. That's www.com. Dr. Apsley, that's D-R-A-P-S-L-E-Y.com, www.dracapsley.com. We'll have him back on and keep on top of this Ebola story, of course, because it's not going anywhere anytime soon. My website, of course, is www.richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Congratulations, you found us. Uh, I'm going to be totally upfront here, and, and I haven't figured this out, uh, but for some reason, ticket sales for Follow the Truth, The Conspiracy Show Summit, which is coming up fast, Sunday, November the 16th, they're really lagging. We're not selling the tickets the way we thought we would. And I am bringing the top people in the world uh, in to talk about UFOs and time travel and past lives, Rendlesham Forest and, and Roland Crop Circles and the pyramids. So if you're thinking of going, you better order soon. Or, quite frankly, we may just have to pull the plug on this thing. I don't know what's going on. Maybe the, the men in black have hijacked everyone at the box office at the Regent Theater in Oshawa. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it is what it is, right? But listen, it's an all-day conference. And for just $100, that's a great value. Plus, if you use the code word ROSWELL, you get 25% off the ticket price. So please, call tomorrow. Call 905-721-3399. 905-721-3399.
or visit Roswell or sorry, visit uh, followthetruth.tv. Maybe that's the problem. I can't get the website straight. <laughs> followthetruth.tv. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of astrologers on this program. Occasionally, I'll have an intuitive, someone like Douglas James Cottrell. Uh, I think psychic abilities exist. They're real, but there's there are very few gifted people, and I would I would count Douglas among them, no doubt. But I've always wondered if there's some common denominator that these intuitives and astrologers and remote viewers are tapping into to get their information. My next guest actually started wondering that question several decades ago, and after years of researching this with his partner, he developed a very sophisticated predictive tool called Time Tracks. And that's where we're headed for the next 45 minutes or so. It's called the Merlin Project. And I'm going to give you some contact info right now. I'm going to front end this because we may run out of time. You might want to get a hold of the Merlin Project after hearing this. The number 305-682-2322. 305-682-2322. MerlinProject at gmail.com. Merlin, like the wizard, project at gmail.com. Paul Garcia was a nationally respected futurist and a longtime student of traditional and esoteric predictive systems. His 25, year, uh, 25 years of research into the psychical sciences and subsequent collaboration with Dr. George Hart directly resulted in the creation of the Merlin Project, and his clients include many prominent business people, politicians, and celebrities. Paul Garcio, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good, Richard. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's been a while. You know, I, didn't, I have not had a chance to listen back to our last outing, so I, I can't really keep you guys uh, up to speed on what, what we predicted and whether it happened. Well, I'll tell you what, and if people want to, want to go back and listen to that first interview, because that will give them sort of the nuts and bolts to understand how time tracks work. And that, if they go back into the archives, that's May 26, 2013. Now, we spent a lot of time uh, in that hour, Paul, just, dis- just discussing what time tracks are, how they work. I don't want to spend a lot of time doing it now because that show is, you know, it's extant and people can go there. But let's just spend a couple minutes, just refresh uh, some memories as to what time tracks are, how they work, and then we'll get into the meat. Well, uh, my experience with this really started back in the late 60s, and I studied, uh, you know, seriously studied a lot of what we call mystical systems, you know, tarot and astrology and numerology and Ouija boards and you name it, and I spent time studying it. So I know the, 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 you know, the basics of all of those things. And one of the things that I noticed in the process of doing that study was that all of these systems have a similar baseline uh, that, that is time-related. Uh, so uh, the Egyptians and the Sumerians and the North American Indian and so on uh, all came up with ways of describing time uh, that we don't largely pay attention to. So we, we, you know, we look at clocks on the wall and calendars and those kinds of things. But that's not time. That's sort of sort of bookkeeping. Right. Um, right. There are intervals of time uh, I found that are meaningful intervals uh, that come along every so often, and events follow those timelines so when you hear a news story for instance and you hear them say 
you know, that this started seven years ago. Well, seven years ago is not one of those intervals of time that we pay any attention to, except when we hear it, you know, related in a news story. We are sort of base 10 uh, involved, so, you know, 10th anniversaries and 25ths and 50ths and so on, that kind of thing. That's what we pay attention to. But those increments of time are not meaningful in the larger sense of things. No, no. Um, and what I noticed in studying, you know, the, the, uh, the, the forecasting capabilities of, the, of, of earlier civilizations, I noticed that they had discovered that there were increments of time, not, not those, but others, uh, you know, nine months, which is the human gestation period, and, and two years, and seven and a half years. and Sure, like uh, the Mayans. How many clocks 21. or calendars did the Mayans have, like That's eight or true. nine of them? That's right. And, and uh, it occurred to me that what they must have done was they must have noticed that events came in cyclic periods, so that every so many years there was a, there was a repeat of some of the circumstances uh, that had occurred seven years before or twenty one years before, and so on. It's, it's it's where we get things like the seven year itch and the seven days of creation, and and where we get stuff like the uh, statute of limitations, which is seven years, and. Uh, where we get, uh, you know, if you break a mirror, you get seven years of bad luck. Right, right. Uh, so these are where cycles, did, where, cycles. Where did, they, where did those things come from? And, and, and if they are unique to certain repeating patterns of events, isn't there perhaps some way to, to collate those and turn them into a kind of clock? Well, back in the, in the 70s and 80s, I came up with manual ways of doing some of that. And... Uh, on a radio show in Boston at the end of the 80s, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to have, as a listener that night, uh, a, a, an MIT physicist who actually holds the patent for the laser uh, that's used in LASIK eye surgery. So those of you listeners who've had you know, eye surgery, LASIK eye surgery done, uh, are benefiting from the efforts of this physicist. His name is George Hart. And George was a regular listener to the radio show that I was on that night uh, in uh, late 88 uh, out of Boston on a 50KW. And uh, that's kilowatts. That's large station for people who don't know. <laughs> uh, you know the, big, the big station. That's right. The blowtorch. Okay. Just, like right. Just like this one. Just like this one. That's right. And uh, he was listening and had, had been listening to this fellow uh, who hosted that show for years. But somehow or other... Even though I was a regular on that show, I was on maybe as often as three or four times a year. I had even guest hosted the show. Uh, he had never heard me before. And what I was doing was laying out a premise on how time works, that there's orchestrated intervals of time and that events happened uh, in those orchestrated intervals. Well, he called me up and wanted to get together and discuss this. He actually wanted to see what I had to to show him about this, and that was uh, in uh, the the spring and winter and spring of, of 1989. So we're talking 25 years ago, um, and uh, that relationship developed into a into a research organization called the Merlin Project, 
and uh, Dr. Hart and I have been uh, been involved in research uh, with Merlin now for uh, a little over 25 years. Uh, we've been regulars on National Public Radio and NBC Nightly News. Uh, you sometimes guest host uh, Coast to Coast. We've been there. We were regulars there. Right. What 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 Merlin essentially does is it turns time intervals of time into a kind of musical score so that uh, if you measure time from any particular instant forward or even backward but forward especially you're going to get a set of uh, time intervals which are going to allow you to make predictions because in those time intervals we have uh, incorporated all of these uh, time frames that the ancients had noticed, we've turned them into into like a kind of clock or, as I said, a, a musical score. And each one is different. So, in other words, if you measure time from a particular instant forward, you're going to get a graphic of where the highs and lows, the, the, essentially the change points, uh, where those are going to be located in time going into the future. And what we've developed is a graphic. Actually, we've recently released a, uh, an, a smartphone app, which is available if you happen to have a smartphone, you have an iPhone, you have an uh, a, uh, Android, or, or the iPads and the, and the Android tablets, uh, usable on those as well. And instead of believing this or disbelieving it, uh, you can actually, you know, uh, uh, acquire this app and try it out for yourself. And what you'll find is that if you measure time from the moment you arrived, um, you will see these mountain ranges occurring every so often. And those mountain ranges on the graphics will coincide with periods in your life when there was a gigantic cluster of change going on. It's when you got married, it's when you got divorced or had kids or lost parents or started a career that lasted 20 or 30 years. Uh, and you'll see this in terms of high levels of activity on the graph, which is basically designed to follow the, the plot of time as measured from the moment you arrive. All right, listen, we're, we're going to go into a break here, Paul. So when we come back, let's run some current geopolitical events through these time tracks, and let's find out what's going on with things like the Ebola outbreak and, and uh, the ISIL uh, uh, marauders uh, rampaging across the Middle East. What's in store? Paul Gersio is with us from Project Merlin, and it's projectmerlin.com and timetracks.org. Tracks spelled T-R-A-K-S, timetracks.org. Back with more of my conversation with Paul right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Paul Gersio is with us. Projectmerlin.com, timetracks.org. And uh, towards the end of the hour, he'll, he'll tell you how you can uh, download that Time Tracks uh, app onto your uh, your iPhone or what your uh, your smartphone or what have you, and you can run some time tracks of your own. All right, so we've got a basic understanding of how these work. Let's talk about uh, the Ebola outbreak. And you had, of course, patient zero in the United States uh, who, who recently passed in uh, Dallas. Uh, so, do we need to be concerned based on the time tracks of 
you know, more of these uh, uh, patients arriving, perhaps even a cluster or two, a cluster or two developing in the United States. Well, here's how you do it. Um, when we when we run these time tracks, we need a starting moment. And in the case of Ebola in the United States, our starting moment is with the diagnosis of patient zero who just died in Dallas. Uh, it was September 30th, uh, 2014. Uh, I don't know what the time was, but we'd probably start that one at midnight because we don't know what the time was. And what you see when you run that and what your listeners would see if they downloaded this time tracks app is that they would notice that there's some activity uh, over the course of the next six months, but it's diminishing activity. It's, it's dropping off. The, the graphic, for instance, the, the graph of activity is progressing uh, to the point where it, it essentially vanishes uh, around the middle to late spring of the, the coming year. So in 2015, by about, say, May, uh, give or take a month or so, uh, the, uh, the effect of this epidemic would diminish to the point where it was no longer uh, occurring in the United States because that's the beginning moment that we have to work with. We would work with, with patient zero, and when he was first diagnosed, all of the other diagnoses so far uh, that, that where patients were actually transported to the States uh, they were diagnosed in, in Africa. Uh, we knew that they were coming here with Ebola when they flew here to go and get medical attention. This one person, this Dallas person, um, was diagnosed uh, after he got here. So he would be patient one, essentially, patient zero. Um, and if you run that date, September 30th, 2014, and you look to see what the graph is doing, it's a, if you thought of these graphs as being a little bit like musical scores, uh, it's the end of the song. Uh, the song is, is, is quieting down, last, last few stanzas of the song uh, occurring through perhaps April or May of next year, and then no song. So at least as far as Merlin is concerned, there isn't going to be an epidemic in the United States, uh, at least uh, as occurring uh, with this patient zero. Um, my hunch is that if we find uh, a new patient zero, that is somebody developing this with no uh, apparent connection to the, uh, to the epidemic that's going on in Africa, we would have to reset the clock. But well, that's exactly my, that was my, my question. What happens, question. <laughs> what if we get a new patient zero? Or what if well, someone is diagnosed in, I'm, in I'm, Africa and somehow makes it to the United States? Well, if they knew it in Africa and he got to the United States, they would have known it in Africa. So he would not be, he would not be a patient zero here. Uh, I'm talking about uh, patients, I'm talking about people here where there's no clear connection to the African epidemic going on. Now, obviously that has to be, okay, because we don't have Ebola in the United States and nobody's going to be catching Ebola here uh, out of the clear blue sky. So there would probably have to be some connection, but without knowing that, if it appeared that we had a patient, a new patient, zero, 
then we'd have to reset the clock and see what that looks like. But even then, what's curious about Merlin is if the beginning looks like it's going nowhere, then there's really nothing along the way that changes that. So if we got a new patient zero, it would also be tapering off uh, like this, the actual patient zero was. And we would again see something that's not going to turn into a real epidemic. On the other hand, um, as I mentioned to you earlier uh, when we were chatting about this before we got on, a uh, hundred years ago, in the in the in the the years beginning about uh, 1916, 17 in there, and especially uh, 1918, there was this Spanish flu uh, that uh, uh, that decimated populations. There were about 20 million victims, or 25 million victims uh, of that of that. Uh, in, incident, and uh, that is a hundred years ago. And what's interesting is, patient zero in Europe is a Spaniard. Interesting, okay. yes, the a, Spanish a flu revisited. <laughs> exactly. Well, see, there's and and by the way, this, the starting date for this fellow in Texas was September 30th. The starting date for this woman in Spain is several days later. Uh, I think it's it's uh, uh, it's more like the fourth or fifth um, that that she was diagnosed, and she was not diagnosed until she got to Spain. So she wasn't diagnosed ahead of time in in Africa, and then shipped to Spain. Uh, she was diagnosed when she got there, and so she would be a European patient zero um, and with a different time track entirely, and the possibility that there would be a much more uh, pronounced epidemic in in Europe than there would be here. Now it'll be interesting to see if that actually happens. We've we've gotten much better in terms of the medical community handling these kinds of things. I'm I've been very impressed with watching what the CDC is doing. Uh, although uh, a a black person in Texas didn't get treated the way uh, they might have been had they not been a black person in Texas. Right. Have you uh, run the time tracks on this Spanish nurse, Paul? Uh, I have to look up the, the actual time when she was diagnosed and make absolutely sure that she was not previously diagnosed in Africa. If I'm satisfied that she didn't get diagnosed until she got to Spain, then I can run that. So I, I honestly haven't run it yet because I haven't found out what that starting moment was. Um, and uh, I've, I've looked, but sometimes these things are hard to, to, to establish because nobody pays attention to this. Okay, time is not a factor in most events as far as people are concerned. Time doesn't have anything to do with any kind of causal or, uh, or uh, definitive involvement. Uh, you, you, we look at time basically in our lives as an abstraction. Right. We don't think of it in terms of being uh, involved in some way in the actual uh, you know, timetable of future events. That's what George and I have discovered with this, with this technology that we've been using, is that everything has a timetable. Everything has a cycle. Uh, That's right. Everything has, it's, it's almost as though there's a merry-go-round going, around, going on, and we jump aboard that merry-go-round whenever we jump aboard it, and there's going to be a certain length of time before you get to the brass ring, depending upon when you jumped on the moving, you know, the moving cycle. So... You know, if you jump on a merry-go-round, you may 
come up to the brass ring immediately after you get on. On the other hand, you may have just passed it, and you've got to go all the way around to get to it again. So it's a little bit like that. And uh, if, if the time sequence is, uh, is running at a different rate or running at a, at a different, in a different pattern, uh, where you hop aboard the ongoing cycle changes the timetable of the events. Right. That's, that's, a, that's why, for instance, when we, when we look at um, uh, moments of time, uh, we can give you an idea of what the repeating pattern is going to be, but you can hop aboard the cycle and and have you know uh, weeks or months only until until you hit a transition spot. On the other hand, you can hop on uh, a couple of minutes or la- or weeks or months later only and have years upon years before you get to that first transition spot. Right. I, I read so, recently, uh, and, you know, people love to malign uh, President, uh, the former President Herbert Hoover, of course, because he presided over, you know, some of the worst uh, uh, economic years in, in American history. But uh, President Hoover was fascinated by, he actually founded a, a, a center to study cycles. And so, you know, this is going back into the, 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 the 20s and early 30s, so b- back then they were, you know, uh, obviously not sophisticated, uh, as sophisticated uh, about it as, as which, with, with, which you, what you're doing. But they were, they knew then. And I'm wondering, you know, is this how fortunes were made? These elites that that uh, almost inexplicably amassed these huge fortunes. Did they, did they did they have knowledge of these well, cycles and take I'll advantage you, of them? I'm, some may have. Okay, some may have because. If you go to a gifted astrologer, for instance, and I'm not suggesting that there are a lot of those out there. There are people sort of that fool around with it, but they don't understand the mechanisms really, and they still haven't done any real research, so they don't know. But there are some gifted people out there who have discovered that what, what George and I have essentially put together here is a kind of, uh, you might think of it as applied astronomy. Um, because what we found is that you can measure these intervals by watching planetary cycles, because the, several of the planetary cycles out there uh, mirror some of this. And that shouldn't be a big surprise to us, because time in our, in our existence is measured by planetary cycles. Earth around uh, the sun, Earth on its axis, moon around the earth those are all those are where we get our ocean tides from and our seasons and and so on uh we actually tell time by planetary cycles that's 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 how that's how we tell time and and what george and i have essentially concluded is there's lots more cycles out there that have an effect on things than we pay attention to so if we turn those things into a clock um, and we took all of those cycles and we sort of collated them. Um, y- y- we'd be able to tell a kind of time that w- you and I are not essentially familiar with. It's not, it's not the clock time. It's not the, the calendar time that we pay attention to. It's this other set of time cycles, which actually, when, when collated, give you, uh, give you some measurable in- in- increments that will allow you to forecast things. Okay, I mean we've gotten very good at forecasting stuff like eclipses and so on. Well, why do we do that, and why is it possible? 
Well, it's because we live in an organized universe. Things come in measurable increments of time. And who's to say that those measurable increments aren't somehow involved in the nature of, of event cycles? That event cycles aren't random like we thought they were, that they're organized. And what George and I have put together is a kind of massive clock that gives you a sense of that organized set of intervals. For instance, just to give you a, a larger idea, if you had a room uh, full of mousetraps and you loaded them up with ping pong balls so that you had, say, 4,000 mousetraps with, with ping pong balls on top of them, if you threw a ping pong ball into that room, you're going to have ping pong balls flying every, every which way. What George brought to the table here was an ability to write massive computer programs that could tell you when it would start and exactly how many would be in flight at any given moment. Right. That I... you would know when the maximum dynamic would be of the maximum number of them flying and how long it would take for the whole thing to quiet down to where you have one or two still flying around. Okay, I got to jump okay. in here, Paul, because we got to go to a break. But it's starting to sound like there's order, even in seemingly chaotic situations. There is order. Uh, it sounds almost like the beautiful mind. Listen, uh, we'll, there's order. <laughs> we'll take uh, a time out. We'll come back. Paul Gersio from Project Merlin, timetracks.org. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Why don't you stay a while? We're back with Paul Gersio. And uh, we were talking about, you know, chaos, uh, order existing even in a in, in chaos within chaos and you gave us this wonderful illustration of the of the ping pong balls and 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 so forth did you want to uh, elaborate on that before we move on to another time track uh, I'll, t I'll give you i'll give you a, a very meaningful example that's worth paying attention to this this iron dome that the israelis have set up to uh, to to uh, uh knock out incoming missiles and right. knowing which ones are real missiles and which ones are sort of bogeys and so on. Well, that Iron Dome came out of research that Dr. Hart did for the Defense Department in, in the old SDI program that, that Ronald Reagan cooked up back in the early 80s. Okay, George was working on that program from 83 when it started uh, on and off through into the period we're, we're in now uh, although not nearly as, as much, because there isn't the kind of funding for it now that there was then. Uh, we were still involved in the Cold War in, in 83 when, when that was first put forward. But the whole idea of that was to set up a, 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 a shield, uh, the ability to detect incoming uh, of missiles, and since we now have missiles with multiple warheads and so on, um, uh, some of those are not live, and some of them are, and the trick is knowing which are which. Well, that's what George was doing uh, for the Pentagon. He was writing uh, programs so that they were able to detect which, which warheads were worth you know, going after and which ones should, should be left alone. You couldn't go after all of them. You'd have to know which ones were the right ones to go after. Well, that's, that was the technology that George was working on for the Pentagon for a number of years with the highest security clearances. In fact, we were worried uh, at various points in this project that they were going to find out what we were doing <laughs> and they were going to cancel his security clearance. Because it was like, what are you doing, this crazy stuff? Well, um, given your track record, Paul, do you get, do you get called in uh, by the Joint Chiefs or... or 
or uh, the CIA? Like my, you're not going to like my answer to this. Okay. In 1995, in April, we got a phone call from a unit of the Joint Chiefs called the Joint War Fighting Center that was located in Fort Monroe, Virginia. And a lieutenant colonel called us, and we thought at the, initially that he had seen us on Larry King because we were regulars on Larry King's CNN show uh, for years, for a number of years, and we thought he just wanted some information for himself. So knowing that he was a, a, a Pentagon guy, I turned him on to George because they speak Pentagonese and I don't. Um, and so George talked to him for an hour or so and found out that this guy had contacted us because he'd been instructed to do that by uh, his commanding officer, what he referred to as flag officers. Well, George never ran across that term before, and I certainly didn't know what it was. So George was working for a think tank out of D.C., and he called up the D.C. office, and he said, you know, what are flag officers? And he was told that flag officers are two-star generals and above. Mm, yeah, these are the big monkey mucks, yep. Okay. So we had we had received an inquiry from the two-star general level at the Pentagon, and they wanted to know what we were up to. So we put together a, a study of... Uh, what we were doing, and we used domestic terrorism as the time model. And the time model we picked was the only one we could think of where we were attacked from outside the country by, by a foreign uh, uh, source, and the only one we could think of was the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. So that was what we used as our time model for these time tracks. Never, never thinking that they would come back and finish the job. And what we did was we came up with a set of graphics that indicated that around the turn of the century, probably into 2000, late 2000 or 2001, there was going to be a big uptick in domestic terrorism. And we filed this report with the Pentagon people um, in July of that year. That was 1995 and never heard another word. Now, I thought we were going to, I, I thought we were golden at this point because, you know, oh, the Pentagon's gotten in touch with us. Sure, and George, sure. Had, George had originally told me, don't, don't count on any of the intelligence agencies or any of those people to look us up because they just won't, and we can't go and knock on their door because they won't pay any attention to us. i got about 30 they, seconds here, Paul, here before they, we break. Here they, had, here they had done that. We provided them with a report, 40 copies of the report, that were sitting in the file drawers at the Pentagon when the plane hit the building. Mm, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I've seen that movie before. I know yeah. how it ends. All right, listen, we'll uh, take another time out. We'll come back, and let's get some time tracks going on uh, ISIL, this scourge that is rampaging across the Mideast. Paul Gersio from Project Merlin, projectmerlin.com, timetracks.org. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. All right, uh, Paul, is, is the Pentagon taking you seriously now? Well, let me just f finish that story. The, uh, I had, when I found out that they had looked this up, I was all excited. George said, don't, don't get excited. I said, why? He said, well, you don't know how the Pentagon works. I said, okay, so how does the Pentagon work? He said, well, they cycle these people, like the guy that got in touch with us, in and out of these jobs about every 18 to 24 months. So by the time we get this thing to them, 
there will probably be some new guy in that job who won't know anything about it at all, and we'll have to try and explain to him why the previous guy even asked for this report. He said one of the things as a Pentagon contractor that we have to deal with all the time is spending about 75% of our time instructing the new person in that job to what the old person already knew. And he said that ties up contractors to the Pentagon. About 75% of their work workload is spent trying to convince the new guy of what the old guy had decided was worth looking into. They don't stay in those jobs long enough to carry the information forward. So by the time we filed the report about about where we saw the uptick in in, in terrorism, which pictured basically graphically what we now call 9/11, okay, they were all new people at the Pentagon. And all they did with the report was stick it in a file drawer someplace, all 40 copies of it, and never took, never took it seriously and never did anything about it. And by and large, that's still true. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what about the other intel agencies? Well, we, we, the dealings we've had with, with, with the government are basically uh, Pentagon-related. One of my uh, clients, uh, current clients, uh, is uh, a former U.S. Secretary of Defense. Um, and I've had him as a client since he was a congressman from Maine back in the 70s um, and actually told him at one point that if he ran for senator, he would win. And, the, and then he sort of went up the, uh, the, 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 the chain of command here. He went from being a U.S. senator, uh, a, a congressman to U.S. senator, to Secretary of Defense, um, and uh, uh, even he had no answer to why it is that things like that get shoved in drawers and don't get paid attention to. Mm. As best he could explain it to me is they try and cover all the bases by looking into anything that looks like it might be useful, but the problem is that that management or industrial sort of mentality and, and memory does not get carried along in the organization uh, unless the individual who requested it originally moves up in rank and, want, and, can, and puts, puts continuing time into, into looking into that. And that most of the time does not happen. So uh, the, the, the government, the Defense Department, and the intelligence agencies look into a lot of things like, uh, like DARPA, for instance, uh, looks into all kinds of odd stuff, uh, but, and even throws money at it sometimes. Uh, like, for instance, uh, remote viewing is one of the things exactly. that they were into. Right. Um, uh, but how much remote viewing has actually been used as a practical you know, device Okay, that's the problem. It it doesn't get to that stage, uh, in most of the time because it, it's not understood as a as a practical method because they don't know why it works or if it works. Um, or they're embarrassed so, by it. I mean, if you talk to Russell well, Targ, that too, yes, that yeah. too. They're embarrassed right. by. It. Uh, uh, to, <laughs> this fellow who's the the former Secretary of Defense, CBS wants to do a sixty minutes piece on us. He's been. Uh, 
he's been sort of jerking around the last almost a year in not calling them back and discussing it, and he's been actually using this technology for, at this point, about 35 years. So he's been a client for 35 years. He knows it works. Hmm. Okay, we actually got him out of a building where a where a, where a, a, a gunman had come in to uh, take pot shots at the people in the lobby, and I we I, we had told him that there was a, a window of time coming up that that particular year when they better be on their on their you know best best behavior because they it was they were going to be very vulnerable. He got he got himself and his wife out of the building before this happened, and called us up to thank us for saving their lives. And you would like to think that that kind of person would be willing to go on the record. You would think, yeah. But you would think didn't happen. Okay, so uh, I want to get to ISIL here in a second, but let me just ask you one quick question. Sure. And that is, in terms of the the, the practical usage, when you see your time track, and let's say I, I enter in, you know, um, January twelfth, nineteen sixty four, my birthday. So I'm seeing activity in September, or uh, you're, you're January twelfth, sixty four. Yes. Is so, that really true? It is. So, and I don't throw that Whoa. out there to get you to do me a time track. But no, I'm, I don't have to because. The, the next three to five years, maybe even five to seven, I have to, I have to look it up. And if you had that thing still on your phone, okay, <laughs> you, you undoubtedly, okay, would have called me up months ago and said, what is this, what is this graph doing on my, on my life over the next couple of years? Because uh, uh, this mountain range has surfaced and... Uh, what does it mean? I mean, the 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 people born at the earliest the the earliest part of the year between at this point around the fourth or fifth of January up through about the twelfth or the thirteenth, which includes people like Rush Limbaugh, it includes people like Howard Stern. Uh, it, I believe it also includes. Um, now let me think what his name is. Um, um, who who did who did uh, who did uh, Bush call Turd Blossom? What was his name? What's his name? Oh, yeah, right. You know who I'm talking. Yeah, about. the vice president. Uh, uh, Carl Rove. Oh, Carl Rove. Sorry. Carl Rove. Okay. Okay. Who's born right in there too? Have you noticed that Carl Rove has sort of vanished from the scene? Almost? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. When he was. Maybe the biggest thing around for quite a few years. Well, that's that cycle kicking in. Um, so the people who are born, uh, and you guys out there listening, you can jot this down. If you're born between, let's say, the fourth, third or fourth of January and about the thirteenth, so that's a, about a ten-day span in January. Also in April, also in July, and that includes George Bush. The second, okay, uh, and also in October, uh, those four windows, those ten days, that forty days out of the year, uh, are among the most exotic in terms of what's going to happen in the in the three to five years or five to seven years, depending uh, for those dates. It no could be the, it could no be good, it could be bad. Is. It could That's be good, right. it could be bad. That, we don't know. That is that is correct. All right. There's no the only way you can sometimes tell is to know what happened, if you're old enough, what happened the last time that happened, 
which would be approximately 21 years ago. So if you go back 21 years and you look at what was going on, say, between, a, between 19, 20 years ago and 23 or 24 years ago, so that's, that's roughly the window, but the actual time interval is about 21 and a half years. You go back 21 and a half years and look at what was going on in terms of relationships, in terms of career, in terms of uh, you know, health and well-being, uh, you know, in terms of finances. Uh, you'll find that this window coming up, just just beginning, is going to have many of the same elements and often some of the same cast of characters. So changes may go on in your relationship with people that surfaced in your life around that point or arrived in your life at that point. Uh, Any way of fine-tuning that? I mean, are we at well, that stage? There, there, yes, if you were a client, there's a way to fine-tune it because okay. if you're old enough, I can go back to, to other intervals, and I can go back and take a look at what happened about seven years ago, and I can, and, and, and it, it, I can make projections from things you know happened at the, say, 21-and-a-half-year mark uh, ago, um, and, and, and whether some of those things that, you, that may have been problematic at that point have been corrected, um, because... The same kind of stuff doesn't go on unless you're the same person you were then. Right, right. Uh, if you're the same person you were then and what happened was problematic, I'd start looking for a place to hide out. Uh, <laughs> All right, but, now I'm going to go thumbing through my journal and say, what happened? Well, uh, it's not a bad... <laughs> listen, people who keep journals and really do seriously keep them are probably the best off because if they know when to look in the past... And they know what the intervals of time are that have these change periods built into them. They can start to make a pretty good prediction as to at least the nature of the things that are going to surface at the next one, because they're either going to be a growth spurt from the previous one, or they're going to be a repetition of some of the stuff at the earlier one, um, or they're going to be uh, the culmination of things that were begun at that earlier one. Okay. So. You know, as as just as a, a client to to a consultant, if you were a client of mine, and a lot of the people I do radio shows with are clients. Hint, <laughs> hint. They, they get, well, they get, <laughs> you guys, you guys get you know side little side goodies like this, and then start thinking, gee, I better call this guy. Um, uh, uh, Message I, I to won't self. mention yes. any names right off, but you know some of the people that okay. I, we do shows with, okay. and I would say. Three quarters of the clients. We will talk no. after the show for sure. Listen, I got I, I got about a minute and a half here. Let's spend. Just give me a, a, a thumbnail of ISIL. What, what's the time track on that? Um, uh, when we did the the, uh, the Coast show in July, uh, and we may have mentioned this as far back as the show we did with you in May of of uh, 2013, somebody said to me. Well, you know, you guys hit hit 9/11 almost right on the nose. What do you see coming up? Well, if you take 9/11 as this as your starting moment, in other words, don't go back to the first World Trade Center bombing, but the but the big one, okay? And you look at some of the other major incidences of terrorism over the last say 10 or 12 years, okay? And you run those what you see is an uptick in terrorism over the next probably two to three years. Uh, 
maybe as serious as 9-11 or a hit like that, but certainly an uptick. And when we said that in July, that was before there was an ISIL that we ever heard of. That was before any of the beheadings were going on or, 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 or any of the, the crisis situation that Obama finds himself in, in terms of figuring right. a way to go after these people. Nothing like that was even being talked about as recently as three or four months ago. Okay, so you nailed that one. Listen, we got very little time. Uh, how do people get the, the Time Track uh, app? So Google Play on the Androids. Uh, the 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 app store on all the apples okay if you go if you go to those those you know online uh, sellers uh, and you do a search for time tracks t i m e t r a k s no c but with an s t i m e t r a k s no space okay and it will say buy merlin and it'll say george hart those are the, those are your clues okay the trial version of this thing is 99 cents okay that'll give you a week or so to play with it and that ought to give you enough time if you paid attention uh, to what we were talking about tonight um of how of essentially how to use it or how it works okay um and it's cheap it's it's you know less than a cup of coffee to get this thing for a month um and uh, even beyond that, it's uh, the year, I think, is about $25 to, to do this. All right, we're running late. Thanks to Tim Spreen and my uh, intern, Albert Vinzel, back next week with the Honorable Paul Hellier talking about the money mafia and a Google insider not to be missed. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.